Oh, hi, my name is Dylan Zimmerman. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Thanks for joining us to watch this uh, service online. We're so thankful that you've chosen to worship with us and hear from us. And what we know that we all need now more than anything is not to be entertained, but we need to be equipped. We need to be encouraged. We need to be fed by the very word of God. And at Sojourn, each week we turn in God's word, trusting it as the inspired and errant word of God that's to be our authority. And we've been going through the Gospel of Mark for several months. And this morning, if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open that up to the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. Now, if you turn in your Bible into the New Testament, you have Matthew and then you have Mark. And we are in Mark chapter 9 this morning. And I'm going to start reading for us in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you equip us, encourage us, challenge us, correct us, and train us according to your word this morning? that we might more fully display your glory and your image in our lives. Father, thank you for sending us your word. Be merciful to us as we hear it this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Where I grew up, in the town I grew up, we had what we called a Saturday morning hoops league. This was for uh, grade school kids who were, who were trying to uh, be basketball players, and it was coached by the, the high school basketball players. And, and what these high school basketball players would do is they'd each have a different team, and they would all assemble their team, play throughout the year during our league, and then they would have a tournament at the end of the year. And of course, like all tournaments, you know that there's, there's one winner, there's going to be a champion, and the rest would be then second, third, fourth after that. Now, in this tournament, there were two teams. It wasn't my team. We had lost earlier. My team wasn't in the championship game. But two teams full of my friends and classmates were playing for the championship game. And the team that everybody thought was going to win was at halftime behind and not doing so well and not really listening to their coach. And so this coach, I remember, he goes over to the trophies that were sitting out on display for everybody to see, to be handed out after the game. And he goes over to the trophy, and he picks up the first place trophy, and he brings it over to his team in the middle of halftime. And he says, look at this trophy. You see this? Do you, do you want one of these? He brought the trophy in front of them so that they could look at it, behold it, think about it, and to encourage them to listen to him that they might get one of those because they were struggling. 
Now, the disciples in the Gospel of Mark, they, they find themselves in a place just like that team during halftime. They are reeling a bit by what Jesus had just told them. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus told them that he was going to go to Jerusalem, that he was going to suffer, and that he was going to be killed. And the disciples don't know what to do. They are reeling from the words that Jesus has said. They, they don't understand. They don't like what they're hearing. One of them even rebukes Jesus. They don't know how to comprehend what he's been talking about. They're reeling a bit. But Jesus continues to gently lead, gently sustain, gently bolster his disciples. And here's what he does. He, he pulls three of them aside, and, and he, he goes and he, he picks up a trophy, as it were, and he, he shows it to them to, for them to behold, for them to be encouraged to listen to him. He does this in his transfiguration. This transfiguration where Jesus goes on a mountain, he's transfigured before them, and they see him, and they hear this voice from heaven that says, listen to him. This transfiguration is an invitation, an encouragement. It's an invitation to behold the glory of the one and only Son of God as an assurance and as a preview of what's to come for all of Jesus' disciples. It's an assurance and a preview of the kingdom of God that comes with power. And it's also an encouragement, an encouragement to listen to Jesus. If this is who Jesus is, this glorious Son of God, then listen to him, trust his word, obey him. And so Jesus takes three of his disciples, almost like an inner circle of sorts. He, he takes those disciples with him on a mountain hike. And they, they go on a hike for the day and head up into this mountain because he wants to show them something glorious. Chapter 2 says, after six days, or chapter 9, verse 2, excuse me, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. And he led them up a high mountain, high mountain by themselves. Now, there's an interesting time reference here for Mark. If you've been listening to the Gospel of Mark much, Mark doesn't make many time references. He doesn't often say something specific about time. In fact, his, his Gospel isn't arranged chronologically. We don't know the exact timing of different events and how they're all placed together. He doesn't chronologically order his Gospel at all. And so here, when he gives after six days a very specific chronological time reference, we have to wonder what he's doing. It's odd for Mark. I think what he's doing is, is he's trying to get readers to recall what has happened in, in chapter 8. You remember chapter 8 is almost like a turning point for the gospel of Mark. We see in chapter 8 verse 27 that Jesus starts talking to his disciples on their, their way to Caesarea Philippi. He's talking to them and he says, well, who do people say that I am? He says that in verse 27. But he gets a little bit more specific and he nails down even further, who do you say that I am? And of course, the disciples respond with this great confession, this turning point where Peter steps up almost as a, a spokesman and a leader for the disciples and he says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Now we know that Peter spoke better than he knew. He certainly had the right answer. He certainly says it right and indeed Jesus affirms that he says it right. But he, he has with that title all sorts of wrong expectations, all sorts of confusion. This is displayed when Jesus, right after that passage, Plainly, it says, plainly explains to them that he'll suffer, die, and rise again. And when Jesus does that in verse 31 of chapter 8 and following, he shatters all these Christ-like messianic expectations that the disciples have because what they know is that messiahs don't die. They don't suffer. 
Christ isn't going to come and suffer and die. That's not what messiahs do. It was so outside of their expectations that Peter steps up. And he steps up, likely again, sharing this conviction with his fellow disciples, and he rebukes Jesus. He rebukes him for saying that he was going to suffer and die. Now, Peter's rebuke to Jesus is met by a stern rebuke from Jesus and a statement that says, well, no, no, I'm going to suffer and die, but also anyone who wants to follow after me is going to have to take up his cross as well. That the way of Jesus, that the way of the Messiah, is the way of the cross. And it's probably at this point that the disciples might be thinking to themselves, wondering, did I do the right thing in following Jesus? I mean, I've left, some of them have left their families, their companies where they were fishing. They had that business that they were doing. Some of them have left their business. Some of them have left their families, their friends. They've left their lives behind and they're following Jesus. And they might have wondered at this point, and maybe a few points along the way, did I do the right thing? And you could start weighing the evidence, like Jesus he does some strange things. You remember the story how Jesus puts his fingers in a man's ear, spits on his tongue, heals him, but still kind of a strange way to do it. And later Jesus spits in a man's eye, we're told, heals him again, but we're wondering again, why'd you do it this way? It's so strange. But nothing is so strange as what he said in chapter 8, at least to his disciples. Nothing is so strange as what he says about not only being the Christ, the Son of God, but also of dying and of his followers then needing to carry their cross as well. You see, what's happening in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus is slowly, methodically, gently, kindly, graciously removing the veil of who he is, of his identity of his mission, of what he came to accomplish. He's removing the veil slowly. And as he's removing it, it's becoming more and more uncomfortable. It's blinding them more and more. They need more sight given, more healing for them to see Jesus rightly. It's so blinding that there's likely in their hearts a real struggle to maintain the confession that Jesus is the Christ. It just doesn't compute that Jesus would be the Christ and that Jesus would suffer and die. And so Jesus, after that specific time reference included from Mark, takes these, this inner circle, these three men, the future pillars of the church, and he takes them on a hike. He goes up into a mountain, and he takes the veil off. Listen to what he says in verse 2. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. He's transformed. His appearance is transformed before them. And and you get the the very real sense that the author, that the eyewitnesses, and Peter, James, and John, as they're relaying this to Mark, that that they don't have words to say for what happens, for what Jesus looks like. And so they they come up with what they can come up with. He was blindingly white. He was was bright white. They just come up with some language that can try to capture it. They they go with bright white, like like no human worker of cloth, like no launderer could ever produce this kind of whiteness in any sort of clothes. That's the kind of clothes that Jesus had on. That's what he looked like. In other words, Jesus has removed the veil. The, The light that has been kind of temporarily covered, the cover has been taken off. The, the bushel is gone. The curtain has been pulled back so that they see fully the brightness and glory of Jesus. And that's what shines here. His glory is shining. Bright, 
unparalleled glory, resplendent glory from Jesus shines forth. Now what happens in verse 2 and 3 is at least, I think, in part a fulfillment of what Jesus said in chapter 9, verse 1, where he said that some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Here you see the king in his glory. He's displaying himself before them. He is as he will be. He's the glorious Messiah in verses 2 and 3. Jesus is displaying his glory, and he's doing it with before these men up on a high mountain. Now, those words I just said ought to bring up in our minds just a, a similar scene or a few similar scenes from the Old Testament. If you look in Exodus chapter 24, in Exodus chapter 24, we see Moses. Verse 15, here's what it says. Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud, and he went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Very similar to what we're going to see here in the book of Mark, where Jesus takes a few of his disciples, and he goes up on a mountain. There's going to be a cloud there as well. Or perhaps you might think of 1 Kings chapter 19. This is the story of Elijah, where he goes to a mountain, and he's up on a mountain. And there, God blasts some wind before him, an earthquake and fire, and speaks to him with a whisper. Elijah and Moses both have experiences like these men, James and Peter and John, have here on the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus has taken them up on the mountain. They're having similar experiences. These are similar scenes and similar displays of the glory and greatness and massive nature of our God. Both of these men, Moses and Elijah, were significant figures in their own right. They were Massive figures in the Old Testament. They would have been on kind of the, if you were a, a Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah showed almost unparalleled power in their ministries in the Old Testament. Moses is making water come from rocks. He has some ordeals with some snakes. All right. Elijah has the showdown on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. He's fed by ravens. I mean, these men have powerful ministries in the Old Testament. And wouldn't you know it, guess who shows up when Jesus is transfigured in Mark chapter 9? In verse 4, it says, And there appeared to them, that is, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Oh, it's an amazing scene. Jesus takes them up on the mountain, and they're there, and they see Jesus transform before them. He's intensely white, bright white, like no human launderer can do. And he then appears also with, with Moses and Elijah. Now, the whole scene is a little bit hard to describe, right? And I, I don't even know if they could relay it perfectly because it's, it's a big, otherworldly scene. How did they know that it was Elijah and Moses? We don't know, but they knew. Jesus was intensely white. How that all? We don't know. It was that way. But Moses and Elijah, this isn't the first time that we see them together in the Scripture. Now, we don't see them together physically in the Scripture, 
But if you look back in the book of Malachi, we see them in Malachi chapter 4. They're both mentioned together in the same passage. Malachi chapter 4, starting in verse 4, says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And he says, Behold, right after that, verse 5, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And what's he going to do? He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of other destruction. And so what God does in, in the book of Malachi chapter 4 is he's instructing through his prophet Malachi about the coming day of the Lord. He's instructing them how to prepare. And one of the ways he says he's going to prepare them is, is you need to listen to Moses and there's an Elijah to come who's going to help prepare the way. So in other words, Malachi is saying that there are, are preparations that need to be made for the coming day of the Lord, and there's these joint preparers of this coming time. And those joint preparers of that day are Moses and Elijah. And what they're preparing for is the awesome coming of the Lord. They're preparing for the prophet, the restore, the coming of the Lord. And here they show up in Mark chapter 9 on this mount where we see the glory and the greatness of Jesus shining brightly before his disciples. In other words, their presence on this mountain is pointing to the culmination of all of Revelation, all of Genesis, all the way through Malachi. Their coming and, and being with Jesus is pointing to the culmination of all of that in the person and work of Jesus. They are pointing out, and their presence is pointing out the coming of the end. And it's come not as others expected, but it's come in the person and the work of Jesus. And they bear witness to his glory as they look at him on that mountain and they speak with him. Now, this is not the point of their coming, but I think it's worth pointing out that Moses' presence and Elijah's presence may especially show us and display to us the graciousness and the unbounded goodness of our God. Think about Moses and Elijah. Neither one of them had really finished that well in ministry. You might remember Moses, how he struck the rock instead of speaking to it as he was supposed to. And how God takes him up on the mountain and he looks out into the promised land, the land that he was leading the people to. This is where he was going. This was their destination. He's brought them all the way out of slavery and that's where they were supposed to go. That was their destination. And he gets to go and look at it and then God says, you can't go in because of your sin. Or think about Elijah. What a ministry of power displayed. He goes and he has this showdown with the prophets of Baal. They're all crying out to their God. And he says, come on, cry out to your God. We'll see if he's doing anything. Perhaps he's taking a break. Perhaps he's in the bathroom. Whatever you want to do, just make sure you wake him up. Perhaps he's asleep. Nothing happens. And then Elijah takes his sacrifice on the mountain and he just pours water over it, covers it with water. And he prays and God devours it with fire. I mean, th this is a win right here, right? He's won. He has shown that he serves the one and only true God and the prophets of Baal don't serve any God at all. It's time to celebrate. It's time to party. It's time for revival in Israel, right? Instead, as he runs, he hears a message from the queen. It says, you're going to be dead by this time tomorrow. And he asks the Lord to kill him. He's so depressed. And he goes up and he hides in a mountain. They didn't finish well. Elijah may not have carried out from that point. We don't really see much of him from that point on, except for when he gets taken up in a chariot of fire into heaven. They don't finish that well. They didn't get a see and step in the promised land. 
Elijah didn't get to see the revival and renewal that he wanted in God's people. And though Moses never set foot in the promised land, and though Elijah never saw the revival and renewal that he sought and that he wanted, here in the mount where Jesus is transfigured before him, they get a look into the glorious face of Jesus. They stare into his face. This is the face, and 1 Peter tells us in chapter 1, verse 12, this is the face that angels long to look at. And as they look into the face of Jesus, his glorious, exalted figure before them, they get a look into the one who's, who's going to bring God's people into a better country, one that the promised land only pointed to. They get a look into the face of one who's going to bring about the revival, not just for Israel, revival and renewal and restoration, not just for Israel, but for every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. They see him. They're with him. And God is good to have brought them here. They they didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. They they didn't get to see what all they wanted to in their ministries. They didn't even finish well. And God brings them here to this mountain and they get to stare into the face of Jesus. And they bear witness to him. And they speak with him as he's transfigured on this mountain. And the disciples get to take this scene in. Can you imagine being there? And just, Jesus is transformed. He's bright white now. And then all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah pop out. We don't even know where they come from. They're just there. And they get to bear witness to it. And they're stunned. Listen to what it says in verse 5. Peter says to Jesus... I mean, you can just tell. He says, what do I say? And he's a rabbi. It's good that we're here. Let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say. But they were terrified. And rightly so. Now, Peter, maybe he's being hospitable here. And thinking, all right, we need to make sure we take care of these guys. This is an awesome scene. It's good that we're here. Uh, let's, let's keep this conversation going. How do we make sure we can keep them here? Or maybe Peter's saying, it's happening. We're seeing the, this glory of Jesus. Here's Moses. Here's like, it's happening. God is going to dwell with his people, and his people are going to dwell with him. It's happening. So here's what we're going to do. We build tents. We're going to build tabernacles for them all to stay on because it's time for the kingdom of God to be coming, to be here in power. Let's build tents for them so that they can remain. But either way, these are the words of one who is terrified who, as Mark says, he doesn't, doesn't know what to say and who can blame him if you were to take in the scene. And I can imagine, I wouldn't know what to say either. But if he's really saying, and I think this is the positive view of Peter, if he's really saying, it's happening, the kingdom of God is here, there's Jesus in all his glory, there's Moses and Elijah, it's happening. So let's build tents. If he's really saying that, then, then he's forgetting something very essential that he need not forget that Jesus just told him. What has Jesus just told him must happen at the end of chapter 8? That the Son of Man must suffer, must die, must be raised. Peter's leaving that out at best. Apparently, the conversation that Moses and Elijah and Jesus are all having together didn't enlighten him. What did they discuss? Wouldn't we love to know? We, We don't know. We do get some hints, though. In Luke's version of the transfiguration, in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, it says that they were speaking of his departure, Jesus' departure in Jerusalem. 
This makes sense because this is what Jesus had just told them right before he came up on the mount. He told them that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, and that he was going to die. So it makes sense that as they come at this time, they are discussing that departure, Jesus' suffering and death. Now this is a departure and news that the disciples didn't want to hear. When Jesus told them that he was going to suffer and die, they didn't want to hear that nonsense. It's not what happens to Messiahs. And so Jesus is rebuked by Peter because they didn't want to hear any part of it. But Moses and Elijah come, and they want to discuss it. They want to talk about his departure. It seems that their conversation and their presence with the transfigured Jesus is affirmation of him, confirmation of this path that he's on to suffering and death, to the path of the cross. They give their weight of confirmation to it by their presence and by their speaking about it especially in light of the outright rejection from the disciples of the path of this Messiah to the cross, especially in light of that, their conversation seems to lend weight and affirmation to what Jesus is doing in his path to the cross. One author says it this way, that the lesson on the mount had been well, had to be, had been well learned. The cross was the talk of heaven. And as those who see his glory, who know his path, Moses and Elijah, they, they see his glory, they know his path, they didn't finish the best, but here's what they want to talk about out of all the things they can talk about, all the things they can ask him. They want to talk about his departure. They want to talk about the cross. Perhaps as they talked to him, surely they would have shared appreciation. Thank you for coming. Thank you for doing this. Knowing their own sense of failure, there would have been a deep gratitude there, likely. Probably they're encouraging him, cheering him on. Go and succeed where we failed. Go and do what we couldn't do. Go and accomplish what we could never accomplish. Go do that for God's people. I'm sure they were encouraging him and cheering him on, but they were definitely there giving their affirmation that what he's doing is necessary, and don't they know it as people who didn't finish well. They know that what Jesus is there to accomplish, that his dying on the cross is necessary, that it's the talk of heaven, and that's what they discuss. And so Moses and Elijah, they give their confirmation to the personal work of Jesus. I think that makes sense also within the context, because we also see another confirmation. You read verse 7 cloud overshadows them and a voice comes out of the cloud and it says this is my beloved son listen to him and suddenly looking around they no longer see anyone but jesus only the cloud often in the old testament is the symbol of god's divine presence you see this in the mountain at sinai when moses goes up to get the law you see it when when solomon is dedicating the temple you see the, this cloud come in. It's the presence of God. It's a symbol of God's divine presence. And out of this cloud, out of this divine presence, there's divine approval. This is my beloved son. Listen to, them, to him. He, he doesn't say anything about Moses and Elijah. I think that's an interesting omission. Moses and Elijah are significant figures. Significant voices in their own right. They would have been on the Mount Rushmore, surely. He doesn't say anything about them. He speaks of his son. He says, this is my beloved son. I'm well pleased with him. He gives his approval, his confirmation, and he says, listen to him. Now this scene is not too unlike the scene of Jesus' baptism. Indeed, the words from the Father in heaven sounding down are similar. They're mirrored in many ways as Jesus' baptism. And I think that that ought to signal to us that this transfiguration is like Jesus' baptism. 
Jesus' baptism was his being set apart, anointed for public ministry. And so after Jesus is baptized, he goes out, and it's then that he starts declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so his baptism set him apart for, for public ministry, and the transfiguration is doing something similar. He's transfigured. He's transformed before them. He hears words similar to the baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And he's set apart for what? For what he's just told them. That he's going to go to Jerusalem, that he's going to suffer, and that he's going to die. See, the the baptism is his setting apart for public ministry, and the transfiguration is his setting apart to go to the cross for his death and resurrection. I think they're working similarly. Now, one commentator says this, that the son was to see the passion in light of the transfiguration. That he was to take up, take the cup as one encouraged by the knowledge of his own identity, reassured as to his father's ongoing love and fortified by heaven's endorsement. And that's what he receives on the mountain. He's transfigured and he receives all of that. And Jesus' path to Jerusalem and death is met by his disciples with rebuke. But Jesus, in his saying, I'm, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, isn't Jesus having a weak moment and like, oh, I guess it's hopeless, I guess I'll have to go and die. It isn't Jesus going rogue and outside of the plan from heaven or outside of the plan of the law and the prophets that they are all pointing to. It isn't outside of the design from the law and the prophets that were inspired by God. It isn't outside of what revelation has been moving us toward. He's not going rogue. The law and the prophets and the Father of, in heaven, they all meet Jesus along his path, setting his face to Jerusalem, knowing that he's going to suffer and die, and they all give their divine approval. They give him their affirmation. The affirmation that he needs comes not only from Moses and Elijah, but from his Father. He gets divine approval, divine affirmation. This is my son. I'm well pleased with you as you set your face to the cross. And so on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus displays his unique glory, and he receives this unique divine approval from his heavenly Father. And Peter, James, and John get to experience all this. They get to see Jesus. They get to hear this voice from heaven. They get to sense this cloud that's overshadowing them. They get all this experience, but they're having a hard time comprehending it, fitting it all in their mind and making it make sense. Which, in, which is why I think it's important to notice a small detail before they head down the mountain. See, they have this great mountaintop experience. Maybe they don't want to go down. Peter's ready to make tents and like maybe let's just stay here and camp out for a while. But they need to go down the mountain. Jesus still has work to accomplish. There's still something for him to do. He's been talking about it. He needs to go suffer and die and be raised. But notice, before they go down the mountain, a small detail that's vital. That Jesus is with them. They're having a hard time understanding, oh, I have to take up my cross. Jesus says he's going to go to a cross. He's going to suffer and die. And here he's transfigured before me. I see him as glorious and great. And they're having a hard time comprehending all these things. But Jesus is with them. Moses and Elijah, they're gone. They can't explain. They can't help. They can't walk through this with them. But Jesus is with them. They're not left alone. Jesus remains with them. He instructs them. He's going to answer some of their questions. He's going to approach their doubts as they come down the mountain. Jesus is with them. When everything else is gone, Jesus is there. He's close. The brightness is gone. Moses is gone. Elijah's gone. But Jesus remains. He's there with them as this good shepherd 
Oh, think about the character and the nature of Jesus, that he doesn't leave us on our own. He won't leave us. Instead, he's different. He's gentle and he's kind with us. He doesn't break a bruised reed. He doesn't say, if you have questions, if you have doubts, get away from me. No, he comes gently to us. He doesn't break bruised reeds. And if there's just a a smoldering uh, flame going on there, he doesn't snuff it out. He stokes it into flame. And that's what he's displaying here. And as he's already made clear, there's still work to do, so they need to come down the mountain. But that doesn't mean he's not going to stay with them and answer them and talk to them. And that's what happens as they come down. As they were coming down, verse 9, he charges them. He instructs them. As their good shepherd, he's leading them. Don't tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Again, this, this whole scene of this transfiguration is not too different than the miracle scenes we've seen over and over in the Gospel of Mark as a display of the, the power and authority and the nature of Jesus as the Son of God. In the miracles, Jesus would perform a miracle, and then there would often be this command to silence. He would tell his audience, like, don't tell anybody what has happened. The silence was commanded for probably the same reason here. Like there was all sorts of misunderstandings about who Jesus was, about his ministry, about the nature of his ministry. There's all sorts of barriers to that, and he wants to keep that at a minimum as he goes along his way. He wants to fill the content of his ministry and the content of who people think he is by his life and his words and his teaching, and so he commands them to silence. He especially wants this here, as there's all sorts of misunderstanding from these three disciples about what's going on. We see this in verse 10. Verse 10 says that they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They have questions. And it says their their questions are, well, what does the rising from the dead might even mean for us? Now, perhaps it's not the rising itself that gives them so much trouble. After all, these are the same disciples who had seen Jesus with Jairus' daughter who lay dead. And he reaches down his hand to her and says, little girl, come awake, arise. These are the same disciples who had just seen Moses and Elijah. So maybe it's not the rising itself that gives them the most trouble. We see that a resurrection is mentioned without reservation by this pagan king, Herod, when they're asking Herod, like, well, what do we, what do we think about Jesus? Who do we think this Jesus is? And he has no problem with the answer of saying, well, this is John risen from the dead. So perhaps it's not rising that gives them the most trouble. More likely, their deep struggle is not with resurrection, but with death. To be raised, he must first die. But he's the Christ. How can he, how can he do that? How can he die if he's the Christ? And their brains can't comprehend. They, they, they see it, they hear it, but it just is not computing in the right way. You know, I think it's kind of like watching the movie Napoleon Dynamite. Now, I know many of you have, have seen this movie because I've heard too much of it around you, I'm sure. And if you watch, and if you've ever watched it, I'm not suggesting that anybody watch this necessarily, but if you watch the movie Napoleon Dynamite, you're, you're going to see a strange spectacle. Like, you, you, you will see it, and you will hear it, and you'll likely be like I was, like most people's experience when they watch it, at least for the first time, is, what am I seeing and what am I hearing? Like, you're... you're Seeing the movie, you're hearing the words, but like it just doesn't compute. It doesn't make any sense. Why is this a movie? Why is this a thing? And I think the disciples are in a similar place. They've heard the words. They've seen Jesus transfigured, and they're trying to put it all together, and it just doesn't seem to make sense. Verse 10 reminds us that the wheels are turning. They're, they're thinking. They're, they're questioning, but they're only coming up with questions and not solutions. Indeed, one of their questions comes to Jesus in verse 11. They ask him finally, well, why do the scribes 
say that first Elijah must come. Perhaps they're thinking of, of Malachi chapter 4, where it says, Remember Moses and the statutes and the rules and the commandments, or I will send Elijah the prophet, and he's going to come before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Perhaps they're thinking of that, and they're saying, well, okay, what about this Elijah to come? What, what about him? But really what's going on in verse 11, though it may not appear so at first, is that their question is, is in line with verse 10. They're struggling with death of the Messiah, of him rising from death. One commentator says it this way, that it is probable that this question actually masks an objection to Jesus' announcement of his suffering and death. For the restoration of Elijah is to effect just prior to the end makes messianic suffering unnecessary. The restoration of Elijah is to effect just prior to the end makes messianic suffering unnecessary. Perhaps that's what they're wrestling with. Maybe that's what they're saying. And maybe they're not objecting, but just trying to sort things out in their minds. And so Jesus responds to them gently, kindly, tenderly. He says to them in verse 12, he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things and how it is written of the Son of Man. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. The disciples have had all kinds of assumptions and expectations that need to be reformed, need to be changed. One of them is of Elijah. They thought, well, why does it say that Elijah has to come? If you're the Christ, and, but we, we need Elijah to come, so why doesn't he come? But they have all sorts of false expectations of this Elijah and what his ministry is and what he's to look like and what he's to be. And so these need to all be reformed because Jesus is asserting here that Elijah did come. He came in John the Baptist. His task of bringing restoration, it looked different than all the expectations. What everybody expected and wanted, it looked different than that. His task of bringing restoration didn't happen through political means or military means. It happened through repentance. And so he led renewal through repentance and forgiveness. That was the ministry of John the Baptist, was to turn everybody, to prepare them for the Lamb of God who was to come by repentance and forgiveness. And that ministry of his... It didn't end like someone would have expected this Elijah to come would have ended. It ended in suffering and beheading and death. And so everybody around him, as they're thinking of John the Baptist, they, they missed him. They didn't see him as the Elijah to come. They missed it. And Jesus' answer to them isn't just getting at the Elijah question. It's getting at their fundamental question. They're asking, in a sense, could Elijah really have come and prepared the way for the Messiah if the Messiah still has to die? Or in other words, can the Christ, can the Messiah, can the Son of Man who has all authority come and suffer and die? That's the heart of their question. And Jesus is saying to them that John's ministry was just a preparation, a foreshadow of his own. As he broke expectations in the way he brought restoration and renewal, as he broke expectations in the way that he suffered and died, so will Jesus in the way that he carries out his life and ministry and how he is and serves as the Messiah and also of his death, of how he will be rejected and killed. All of those are breaking expectations. And just as John isn't disqualified from being the Elijah to come by bringing a, a ministry of repentance and forgiveness and dying a, a harsh death, so too Jesus, as the Messiah, isn't disqualified by saying, I'm going to the cross. He's not disqualified from being the Messiah by needing to suffer and die. 
So what Jesus is doing, he's putting some weight into his argument to get the disciples to see the reality that he told to them in chapter 8, verse 31, that he was going to suffer many things, be rejected and killed. And after three days rise again. He's getting them to see what verse 12 is saying, that the Son of Man is going to suffer and be treated with contempt. He's trying to get them to understand the reality of the cross and how it is in congruence with him as the unique Son of God, as the Messiah. The glory of the Messiah, he's trying to teach them, comes after suffering and death. That would have been something that would have shocked them. It's outside of all expectations, outside of every mold that they would have had for the Messiah. Or we could put it in Old Testament terms, Jesus is trying to teach them that the man who is said who is to come, in Isaiah chapter 9, you remember the Prince of Peace, mighty God, who's going to have the government on his shoulders, that man who was to come is also the same man spoken of in Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant who's going to bear the wounds be inflicted with grief. Those are the same person. And to the disciples, they use those categories don't seem to fit together. They like the idea, but they don't know how they fit. doesn't know how it works out. And they don't see how it works out, especially after seeing him in his glorious state with Moses and Elijah. How, how then are you going to die? And that brings up the why of the transfiguration. Transfiguration. Why was Jesus transfigured? Why is this story included? Why were these three brought to this place? And then Jesus silences them until after the resurrection. After the correct confession was made by Peter as Jesus, you are the Christ in chapter 8, verse 29. And then hearing plainly from Jesus in chapter 8, verse 31, that he was going to suffer and die. Jesus shows them his glory on this mount. Why? What is he doing? There's outward clarity on the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. There's outward clarity on Jesus as he's plainly told his disciples of his death. And yet it only brings up questions and doubts in their minds. It doesn't bring them assurance and warm feelings inside. It brings questions and doubts and concerns and confusion. So why the transfiguration? The transfiguration is inserted in every gospel right after the confession that Jesus is the Christ He's telling them that he's going to go to the cross, and then right after that is the transfiguration. It's very intentional in all the Gospels. The transfiguration, then, is two things. It is an invitation and an encouragement. First, it's an invitation to behold the glory of Jesus. An invitation to behold the glory of Jesus. It's knowing him as Christ and as one who is going to suffer and die, going to a cross, those are two concepts that were difficult for them to hold together. And Jesus, in the middle of that, he inserts a very unique assurance, a very unique preview by clearly displaying his glory to them on this mount as the one and only Son of God. Chapter 9, verse 1, he says that some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God that has come with power. In chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, we see a taste of the kingdom of God coming with power. Jesus gives them a taste. It's a unique preview of the exalted Jesus, the one who comes in power. This is a unique preview of the kingdom of God in power because here you see the king in his exalted state. What the three saw on the mount was not what any saw after Jesus was raised from the dead. Right? We're not just talking about 
what they saw on the mount as, as this is Jesus risen from the dead. They get a preview of what happens after he's buried and raised. And no one describes Jesus raised like they describe him here in the transfiguration. Mary Magdalene first encounters Jesus and she mistakes him for a gardener. And Jesus travels with two other people on the road to Emmaus and they mistake him for a fellow traveler. The twelve, they see him in this upper room and they think that he's a spirit. Those are not at all descriptions like what we see here, that he became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach his clothes like this. There's no description like this. In fact, this description that we see here about the transfiguration is much more in line with what Saul sees in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus as he's blinded by this light and he hears this voice. It's much more in line with what John sees in the book of Revelation as he sees this one who's the beginning and the end and he falls down on his feet as if dead. The transfiguration is much more in line with that. So in the transfiguration, Jesus is giving a preview that's not just a preview of his resurrected state, but a preview of his risen, ascended, seated, and exalted as the ruler over all state. That's the preview that he's giving. In the transfiguration, Jesus gives this preview that was needed, I guess, for them. It was even written down because it's still needed. It was needed even after knowing. They they weren't to tell about this until after the resurrection. So everyone has seen him then. the, The disciples had seen the risen Jesus. And Jesus says, you can tell people then after they've after the resurrection, then you can see. In other words, it's still needed. It was needed for the disciples then. It's needed for disciples now. Jesus showed not just a view of him raised, but him ascended, him seating, him ruling as the glorious Christ. That's what the transfiguration is a picture of, a preview of. And this transfiguration previews what Jesus would become after his death, after this resurrection, and when he's ascended and sitting and seated as the one who is ruling over all. This is the kingdom of God coming with power. Behold him. It's an invitation to behold him. And the three saw it. Peter, James, and John, they saw it. They were invited up with Jesus. He takes them with him. And they were instructed not to say anything until. There was an until. There was a time they needed to start saying something. And then he says, then speak. Then start sharing it. And their sharing of the glory that they beheld on that day is an invitation for us from Jesus to behold his glory too. We need to behold this glory that we see on the Mount of Transfiguration. We need to behold the glory and the greatness of Jesus that is displayed there. It's for us too. You see, it is really good news that this is for us, for all disciples of all time, because this isn't just a preview of the kingdom of God's power. This isn't just a preview of what future Jesus is going to look like. This is a preview of all of those who are in Christ. This is our preview. If you're in Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus, this is your preview. Not just what he would become, but what we would become. One author says this. This is an ancient author, Anselm. He says, he gave a preview of his own glory and of the glory of his own. A preview of his own glory and of the glory of his own. The second Peter says it this way. Peter, who was there on this mount, he says this in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, he says that he's called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them 
you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He says you're going to become partakers of the divine nature like he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. In 1 John chapter 3, we read these words from the Apostle John. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. In other words, our destination, what we're moving toward is being like Jesus, like what we saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. So Jesus gives a preview not only of his exalted state, but of our exalted state. When we look at Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, we need to see not only our future, this is Jesus, this is the one we're going to behold for all eternity, but we need to see our future, that we're going to be like him because we're going to see him as he is. And we're invited now to behold him. We're invited to look in his face. That's why he includes this here. He wants us to know this. He wants us to see it. We're invited to behold now because for those who are in Christ, for those who have repented and placed their faith in Jesus, the future of the kingdom of God starts now. The kingdom of God is present in us now. It's an already not yet tension, but it's present now. And we are moving in this direction now. Romans eight twenty nine says that we are being conformed into the image of the Son. We're being made like Jesus now. And our beholding Him now affects how much we're conformed into His image. Listen to the words of, of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's probably a passage that you've heard often. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says, We all with unveiled face. I mean, think about Peter, James, and John. They saw Jesus kind of with unveiled face. It was as bright as they could imagine. And as we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're beholding and becoming like Him. We're being transformed. What we behold, we become. And we need to behold Jesus. We're invited to behold Jesus. What we behold, we become. We behold what we revere. We behold what we adore, what we admire. We behold what captures us, what is captivating to us. That's what we're setting our eyes on. That's where our gaze is fixed. Now, a few weeks ago, I noticed something that started to pop up in every single conversation I had, and it was the current pandemic that we're dealing with. A few weeks ago, as we're all trying to figure out as it hits kind of our local area and, and how, how we're going to react to this. How are we going to deal with this as a church? What are we going to do as, at, for corporate worship gatherings? What are we going to do with small groups? Like I just tried to find as much information as I could. I'm, I'm looking at all these different things. There's all sorts of stuff flying at you from all sorts of different directions about the current pandemic. And so I started to notice something that every conversation that I had, didn't matter what it started with, what it ended with, I would bring into that conversation something about the coronavirus. COVID-19 and the current pandemic. And then conviction hit me. That something had my gaze. And that's why it kept coming up in my conversations. Something had captured me and captivated me. And it was on my lips over and over and over again. And what was convicting was that that thing wasn't God. What had captured me and what captivated me, what I was beholding, what I was setting my gaze and attention and affection on, negative affection, but still on, was the current pandemic. And not on God. In church, there's no mistake that, that during that time, a few days or so, I experienced more fear, more anxiety, more discouragement than I do 
when I set my gaze and attention and affection on God. Because what we behold, we become. And we behold what we most admire and revere and are thinking about and are setting our gaze on. One author says that what people revere, they resemble either for ruin or for restoration. And so if I'm going to revere and think about and set my gaze and attention all on the current pandemic, then I'm going to do that to my ruin, not to my restoration. What people revere, they resemble either for ruin or restoration. So the question comes to us, what are we beholding or who are we beholding? What are you beholding in your life? Jesus has invited us to behold him. And in beholding him, we get to become like him. He displays uniquely his glory, his image for us in the transfiguration that he might capture us with his greatness, his glory, his magnitude, his goodness, his might. He's capturing us. He's giving us assurance and a preview. This is his future. He's giving us assurance and, and a preview. This is our future if we're in Him. But the transfiguration is not just an invitation. It's second, it's also an encouragement. It's an encouragement to listen to the Son of God. In chapter 9, verse 7, this is the exhortation we receive from the Father speaking from the cloud. And notice that this whole scene is set up around the disciples. It's, it's told to them. Listen, he says this. It doesn't say my beloved son, this is, listen to him. It's set up for his disciples, and this is what is said. This is my, my beloved son, listen to him. This one exhortation. In the midst of Moses and Elijah, the father sounds from heaven and says, listen to Jesus. The father makes sure that all who hear know that there's really only one voice to listen to. And sure, he sounds through Moses and Elijah where they're faithful, but really, there's one voice, and the instruction is this. Listen to him. Only one instruction of this. Listen to him. He doesn't say of Jesus, you need to see him physically. You need to touch him physically. He doesn't say those. He said, listen to him. It's interesting because we'd say, most of us, man, I would give anything to just be on that mountain. And if I could have just seen him and how bright white he was, and if I could have heard that voice from heaven, then I would do whatever he said. If I could do that, then I would listen. But let's hear what one who was there says of him. Peter, he was there, and listen to what he says in 2 Peter chapter 1. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. In verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. The transfiguration changed Peter and it even affects his writing late in his life and as he writes 2 Peter. The, the transfiguration, he says, made the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So it seems as if there's two possibilities here. It, it, it confirmed the prophetic word that he already had, so it made it more firm, more confirmed. What they had already heard when Jesus appears and is transfigured, it's more confirming of what all the prophetic word was. Or... 
or those words are more confirmed, more confirming than the experience he had on the transformation. Both interpretations are possible. And it's not my uh, goal today to give you one or the other expect, or, um, explanation of that passage. What it is here to say is that either way, no matter which way you take it, whether the transfiguration made that seem more firm or that was more firm than even the transfiguration, either way, the prophetic word is fully confirmed. It's, in other words, it's certain. Peter, he could have spoken of this great experience and said, you need to trust in that, but he says, nope, prophetic word is firm. It's fully confirmed. It's certain. So let's take it from the Father when he says, listen to him. Let's take it from the Holy Spirit who inspires Mark to write the transfiguration down in the Gospel of Mark and Luke and Matthew. Let's take it from Peter, who was there, who writes this later in 2 Peter. Let's take it from all the weight of the Bible and say, listen to Jesus. Listen to him. That's the instruction. How do we do that? Oh, we we quiet everything else and we open the word of God. It's it's described to us as the, the word of Christ. We open it and we listen to him on every single page as every page is whispering his name. We open the Bible. That's how we listen to him. And we need it. It's the instruction from the Father in heaven. Listen to him. We need to be reminded of what he said. We need to know what he said. And here's what he said. In verse 9 of Mark 9, he says, Don't say this until. Don't say anything until the Son of Man has risen. There's an until. An until because he knows he's going to die. An until because he knows he's going to be raised. There's an until. The same path is before us. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. It's not when or if you get that cross. It's when. If you're going to follow, you're going to have a cross. There's going to be death. You've got to die. Just as Jesus had to die, you've got to die. But there's also a win of the resurrection, too. There's also a if you lose your life, you're also going to gain it. Both of those things are true. The same path is before us. Death and resurrection. Resurrection, where we're going to become like him because we're going to see him like he is. And if you're in Christ, and you listen long enough, you're going to hear, come, you who are blessed of my Father, and inherit the kingdom of God that's been prepared for you. Now this Voice, like no other voice, is the voice worth listening to. It's worth listening to more than any voice. Because when you hear those words, come, you are blessed in my Father and hear the kingdom, you hear the greatest words that you could hear. And there's no other voice worthy of listening to eternally like Jesus' voice. What, what voice are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Or what are you listening to? We need to be listening to Jesus with all the noise that's going around here, especially in our day, let's listen to him. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your words. Would you help us to receive them rightly? Would you help us to let these words propel us to beholding the greatness and the glory of your son, Jesus? And would you help them propel us and encourage us and energize us and give us the means to listen to him, to trust him, and to obey him. Oh God, 
use this word to change us and transform us for the sake of your fame and your glory in all the world. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.